Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, genuine and authentic, unique and original, Wild West presents to you the peerless, little sure shot, Miss Annie Oakley. Let's talk about Annie Oakley, but first, let's place her in history. In 1881, the obelisk called Cleopatra's Needle, though we know it's Tutmos III's, really, was installed in New York City near the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Sherlock Holmes and John Watson solved their first case together in A Study in Scarlet. A little circus called Barnum and Bailey, marketed as the greatest show on earth, had its first performance. The American Red Cross was founded by Clara Barton. Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday took part in the shootout at the OK Corral, and Booker T. Washington established the Tuskegee Institute. This was the year of the deaths of voodoo queen Marie Laveau, Wild West bad boy Billy the Kid, and the assassination of President Garfield. Born this year, Pablo Picasso, Anna Pavlova, and filmmaker Cecil B. DeMille. And in 1881, probably... Annie Oakley's life changed direction in so many ways during a shooting competition with a complete stranger named Frank Butler. Hello and welcome to the show. It's Beckett. It's just me today. Susan is away on vacation. And so let us just proceed with the show. Phoebe Ann Moses, sometimes pronounced Mosey, which is so super Wild West, I can't even believe that was born on August 13th, 1860, the sixth daughter and the fifth of the seven surviving children of Jacob and Susan Moses in Dark County, Ohio. Not the Wild West, you know, as you think about it, I mean, it was the west side of Ohio. Think more like Laura Ingalls's house in the 1970s TV show. It's a little house in the country outside of a village like Walnut Grove. In this case, it was Woodland, Ohio. Mr. Moses was 31 years older than Mrs. Moses, and five or so years before Annie was born, her parents used to run an inn back in Pennsylvania until one day it just burnt to the ground. Goodbye home, goodbye income. Just like Pa Ingalls, Mr. Moses moved his family west to carve out a new independent life for himself straight out of the forest. This guy with no sons, just like Mr. Ingalls, cleared land, planted crops, built a log cabin. Mrs. Moses and her daughters planted gardens and raised animals and made clothes, and it was an all-hands-on-deck kind of lifestyle. And whenever Mr. Moses went out into the forest hunting turkeys or deer or whatnot or cutting firewood, he'd often take his daughter Annie with him. The family always called her Annie because all of her sisters said that Phoebe was too fancy and they hated it. And I don't know if I've ever mentioned that my entire family calls me Book, due to a similar action by my own sister, Gretchen. <laughs> so it is my personal belief that Annie was allowed to go out with Papa because she had all these older sisters who were better help to Mama. Like, Mr. Moses's only son was a baby, so you know what? Okay, Annie, let's go. So where her sisters learned sewing and the rudiments of pie making, etc., feminine arts, Annie was in the woods, gathering nuts and berries and greens and learning how to make traps to catch squirrels or bunny rabbits and 
basically walking around idolizing her big hero. She'd trot out and get the birds after Mr. Moses shot them. Four and five-year-olds are so helpful. Um, One day, when Annie was five years old, Mr. Moses took the wagon to do some trading in town. And at some point during his absence, a blizzard started raging like a white-out, no-joke, terrible snowstorm. And Mr. Moses was not back home yet. Now, readers of Laura Ingalls Wilder will recognize the same scenario from on the banks of Plum Creek, where Pa spent three days in a snowbank just outside the house and ate up all the Christmas candy. And that story did have a happy ending, didn't it? But this one does not. Mr. Moses did come home, though I think it was just because the horse came home itself because Papa was catatonic. His hands and his feet were frozen. He couldn't speak. He couldn't react or recover. He lingered in a bad way for almost another month. He died of the injuries he sustained during that trip. Pneumonia, officially. He was only 66. Now, it was absolutely devastating to the family, emotionally, obviously, but also economically. So what good is a farm with no one to farm it? Mrs. Moses did try to salvage things, but little by little, everything was sold that could be. And ultimately, Mrs. Moses had to sell the farm and take a little rented place. And she got some work as a maternity nurse, not regular enough, not paying enough. It did provide for some basics, and the older girls kept the home fires burning. The oldest sister, Mary Jane, died of tuberculosis at about 15, and so 13-year-old Lydia was the caretaker at home. One day, a couple of years later, as Annie told it, she was sitting, looking at her father's rifle, which was hanging on two hooks over the fireplace, and decided to try her luck with it. There was a squirrel just outside on the fence, as good a target as any, and so she dragged a chair over there and got it down, I guess, because she was only eight years old at the time. And this gun was so heavy. I was just at the Kentucky Military History Museum on vacation because I'm a nerd in Frankfort, Kentucky. And they have this display where you can lift the guns for yourself and feel how heavy they are. And I'm guessing at the very least 10 pounds. I mean, I had trouble myself and I'm a grown up person. Um, these were Kentucky muzzleloader rifles, you know, just like the one Annie was using. And here's here's what you have to do if you want to shoot anything. So you pour gunpowder into the muzzle of the gun. That's the part that the shot comes out of. And then you put something called wadding in. In Pa Ingalls' case, I think it was greased cloth, I think. Well, paper works too, whatever you have. And then the bullet made of lead, probably made at home in their case. And then you use this long rod of metal called a ramrod and you'd push it in over and over to pack everything down tightly, which Chris Graham has one of these Kentucky guns. I have been messing with it and it is like three and a half feet long. So a tiny kid might have to actually stand on a chair to do this part or work over her head, I guess, but you're not done. You have to put this thing called a percussion cap. It has this little tiny explosive charge. You have to put it over this little hole and then carefully, carefully pull back the hammer and cock it. And if you let go, the gun will fire. I did not let my own eight-year-old use the gas stove. And here you've got a child, gunpowder, and a loaded gun. Well, anyway, she dragged that thing outside and rested it on the porch rail. And after all that time, I'm seriously doubting we're still facing the same squirrel. Those little dirt bags are everywhere. Pardon the insult. I'm still harboring some resentment about my strawberries and my raspberries from earlier, by the way, which I didn't get more than, say, seven of. And Annie got one in her sights, one of these dirt bags, and she shot it clean through the head. And since, as she said, she'd put in enough gunpowder to kill a buffalo, I'm guessing the squirrel didn't have a head. 
I don't know. But I'm guessing also that the gun might have thrown her back against the house, too. But maybe that's just Hollywood magic. Anyway, we have a new skill and a squirrel for dinner. So that was the first time that Annie ever used a gun in her life. And soon Annie was taking off every day to hunt in the woods, even though, as her mother said, it was, quote, horrifying to have this unladylike behavior going on. You remember, these people are Victorians. My Ingalls had a problem with Laura Ingalls Wilder helping with the haying, too, until she was sure no one would see her. So rigid gender roles sometimes don't really help. Anyway, Annie didn't listen. She was a very good natural shot, it turned out, and was able to supplement the family meals with her hunting. Mama had married again to a man named Daniel Brumbaugh, and Annie had a new baby sister. But financially, nothing was working out. They just had to have less mouths to feed. Mrs. Moses, or I should say Mrs. Brumbaugh, Mama, sent the littlest sister of her original family off to live with a neighbor and made the decision to send the next two youngest daughters, that would be nine-year-old Annie and 12-year-old Sarah Ellen, who went by Ellen, to live in a place called the Dark County Infirmary. So it's a government institution where people would send orphans or children they could no longer afford or physically or mentally handicapped citizens, even adults, where people were cared for at a basic level, I guess, and probably on a significantly small budget. And when a farmer showed up to see if maybe he could get hold of some likely girl to help his wife around the house because she just had a baby... Well, it seemed like a good solution, like a win-win. I'll send her to school, said the farmer. And I hear she loves the woods, so she can sure have some time to do her roaming around and hunting. I welcome that. Well, Annie's really never been to school. She didn't know how to read or write. On the face of things, this seemed like quite the opportunity. And he said he'd pay her 50 cents a week and put it away for her. That's $18 a week, which for a 10-year-old, even today, is a pretty good allowance. So 10-year-old Annie moved in with this family and just... Like Anne of Green Gables, who we just covered, of course, last month. This is Anne of Green Gables with the Hammond family, where she was a servant. This Annie found herself not a valued member of the family. Annie Moses was an abused, unpaid slave, really, I'd say. Annie never revealed their real names, ever, ever. Even when she was an adult, she would just call them wolves in sheep's clothing or Mr. and Mrs. Wolf. They worked her practically to death from before the sun came up until late, late at night. Annie hinted at beatings and certainly inhumane treatment. For example, one winter evening, she was so tired she fell asleep at her work. The next thing she knew, she had been bustled out of the house by Mrs. Wolf into the freezing night, into the snow, no coat or anything, no blanket, locked out of the house. You guys, this is literally how her father died, by freezing to death. And if this is not mental as well as physical torture, I just don't know what. Well, she was let back in after a while, but my goodness, the damage must have been done. The wolves never sent her to school, never, ever even attempted it. But those sickos, get this, kept writing to Annie's mother, telling her all about her schoolwork and how awesome everything was. We're all getting along so nice, such a joy, etc. I mean, lies, lies, lies. Her mother had written once to ask if they'd send Annie home because they missed her, but the wolves convinced her that she was having such an advantageous life at their house. Surely she could reconsider and she was really a member of their family. Couldn't she stay, etc. You know, turns out no one was coming to save her. So at 12 years old, Annie seized the opportunity to save herself. One day when the wolves were out, she just left. She put some things in a bag and headed for the train station. And I'm really not sure what the plan was. 
Um, exactly, because she got there and didn't have enough money to get her ticket. And a random bystander bought it for her, a man who Annie never met again, but who she included in her prayers at night for the rest of her life. He helped her escape from her torture, and she never forgot him. So one small act changed the course of her life. You never know. Hmm? I'm sure Mrs. Moses was a mess after hearing what had happened to her daughter with the wolves, and I'm sure she felt horrible about having to send her back. But both she and her husband were very, very sick. No more money had appeared from any place, and so Annie was sent back not to the wolf's house which I could never have forgiven, but back to the Dark County Infirmary. And you know what? This sounds grim, right? But the resident caretakers called Mr. and Mrs. Eddington were so shocked at what had happened to Annie that, you know, they took her to their hearts. They felt guilty um, and they were pretty nice people and they'd been tricked by this farmer guy, by the wolves and they treated her practically like one of the family. Mr. Wolf came around, if you can believe that, demanding that Annie come back with him. And Mr. Addington and his son beat the man off the premises. I'm so glad about that. I'm so glad about that. So Mr. Wolf is gone. Ding dong. At last, finally, Annie did get some education. Reading, writing, sewing, knitting, math, uh, embroidery, which she took to. She loved it so much. She was put in charge of the infirmary's dairy, not as a servant. It wasn't a punishment posting, but as a child of the family might be given a responsibility. You know how a farm child might also be responsible for the dairy. She described these years with the Eddingtons as happy ones. She was included and relied upon. She helped with the little children and the other residents. And um, these were some happy and secure days of her life. Stepfather number one had died. And Mrs. Moses had married for the third time, and there was finally room and money for Annie if she wanted to come home. The sister that had gone with her, I don't know too much about what happened to her. She kind of disappears from the record. She actually went by Ellen. She married a man named Grabfelder, and I'm sorry to say died here near me in Kansas City in a car accident, but not till 1930. I'm just going to assume the Eddingtons had been good to her too, but that's really all I know. I just didn't want her to disappear without at least giving you a little update. So Annie, age 15, went back to her mother and to the woods, which she loved so much. She made an arrangement with a store called Katzenberger's in a nearby town that they would buy any game that she caught from her. Specifically, everyone wanted rabbits and quail and grouse. They were in demand for people's dinner tables. Very Katniss Everdeen of her. Annie really supported her family with her hunting. The story is that Annie was able to pay off the $200 mortgage, which is about $4,400 today, um, and save her mother's house from being repossessed. In her autobiography, she wrote, My heart leaped with joy as I handed the money to my mother. Isn't she so good? Uh, she was getting quite the reputation as a great shot. Customers over at the store started asking for Annie's animals special because, unusually, no one ever had to worry about cracking their teeth on a stray piece of buckshot if she's the one that had brought it in. Not only was she a crack shot in this way, she liked to play a little game with herself out there alone in the woods and only shot things when they were on the move. Birds that were flying, rabbits that were running. It was kind of a matter of pride, you know, to challenge herself. The cats and burgers were so very happy with her work that they actually gave her a new sort of gun. It was called a breech loader. Remember all that foo See these Wild West words. All that foo she had to go through to shoot before, and now you just open the middle and you put in a cartridge and you closed it up. The end. You know what? <laughs> I mean, it's so easy comparatively. This gun was made by Parker Brothers and Believe you me, I have been trying desperately to connect the Monopoly Parker Brothers with the Gun Parker Brothers. 
They both had a Charles, dang it, and I don't think it's the same people, but I wish it was. Chris Graham, Mr. Graham, my husband, has one of these uh, Parker Brothers breech loaders. It's a little bit of a later model. I think it's an 1891, but still, these things are so heavy. You cannot debate the convenience over what she'd had before, though. And here she has four years or so of a lucrative career and building up of a reputation as a crack shot. The county, well, you know what, the whole country was just crazy for target shooting. Dark County itself would put on these events that they called turkey shoots, where the guy that hit the most targets would win, you guessed it, a turkey. Not a surprise. Annie won this thing so many times that finally everyone's like, okay, you know what? Look, we get it. Can you just not enter anymore? Like your winner, what, emeritus or something? We'll just compete for second place. <laughs> Please accept this alternate turkey. Let us have our pride. Professional shooters were prime attractions for people all over the country. A relatively new invention called the repeater let someone fire shots in rapid succession. And now you could have quite the show. Real pigeons, clay pigeons, which are like terracotta frisbees, for lack of a better explanation. Glass balls shot right out of the air in the hundreds or in the thousands. 15 shots in 15 seconds. You could get an audience of thousands of people for an exhibition shooter. So enter the field of trick shooting, which is accuracy plus showmanship. You know, I'm going to shoot an apple out of my partner's hand. Watch me blow out this candle with one shot. I'm going to shoot this cork out of the bottle, etc. One of these professional trick shooters, a man named Frank Butler, was hanging out at his hotel after a show in Cincinnati. So the story goes... And got to talking to a group of farmers. Hey, I tell you what, says one, we got a shooter up near us that could beat you. To which he just laughed because, you know, okay, there were a couple of guys on the circuit that could beat him, but some random yokel in a small town, you know, like pull the other one. The farmers didn't laugh though. How about if the winner gets a hundred bucks? That's like $2,000 today. You know, no one's laughing now, except Frank, who wrote later, it seemed like a shame to go take money from these country people, but it was a lot of money and I needed it. So I went out there. Now, I like that story better. There's also a story that a hotel owner with the delightful name of Jack Frost was the one that gave him the wager. I don't know. I like Jack Frost. I like the farmers throwing down. Either way, here he comes, old Frank Butler, to Dark County to find practically every person within striking distance gathered up to see the show. So, you know, so what? He's a professional. Thousands of eyes on me. Fine. He's looking around for whoever dorky farmer's son or some unshaven, sketchy wilderness guy that they're going to put forth. Like, let's just get this over with. And he wrote later, he about dropped dead of shock when a little, as he said, a little slim girl stepped up to the line with me. I love it. The shock value. So was it real birds or clay ones? No one knows. Yes, it was close. But how close? None of my sources seem to agree, frankly. They can't even agree on what year the battle happened. (laughs) But what we can say is that Annie beat Frank Butler and that he was absolutely smitten with her, which I find sort of admirable, actually. He wrote, right then I decided if I could get that girl, I'd do it. Does Frank get that little girl? Stay tuned.
All right, back to the story. So, Frank Butler had invited Annie and her family to Cincinnati to see his act. He worked on stage with a trained poodle named George. And when Annie came to see his act, Frank shot an apple right off the poodle's head and George ran over and put the apple pieces at her feet. Now, how did he train a dog to do that? I was thinking that maybe he was trained to always put them at someone's feet and there was a signal for who or an assigned seat. It doesn't matter. The courtship was on. And Poodle George was the polite fiction. Honestly, At 20, I don't think she'd ever even had a romantic relationship before. Uh, She would write to George the Poodle. And George the Poodle, in quotes, would write back poetry, etc. That is talent. How do you train a dog to do that? Can your dog come up with, Her presence would remind you of an angel in the skies, and you bet I love this little girl with the raindrops in her eyes. Because George can, evidently. Frank began touring with a human partner as Butler and Graham, because I think George was too busy romanticizing. And within a year of meeting Annie, that day she beat him in a contest, they got married. Now, you will see a couple of dates for both their marriage and the contest in question. So either the shootout was in 1875 and the marriage in 1876, which makes Annie 16, or it was 1881 and 82, and Annie was 21 when she got married. I am leaning toward the latter. Annie had reason to shave off some years off her age later, as we shall see, which might account for some confusion. I'm going with the later date and her older age because there is a wedding certificate in existence that is dated 1882. And Frank, in fact, was still married to someone else during that first date. He had had a wife and a daughter. That might have even been an obstacle to Annie's mother. I didn't mention this before, but Annie was raised a Quaker and they were very conservative and um, pretty proper and prim. So anyway, if the earlier date anyway, how was Annie supposed to have built up that big reputation? I just really think all signs point to the later date. I just wanted to let you know that other information's out there, even in published work. So don't be confused. There is a great division in the land. About six months later, Frank's partner, Mr. Graham, no relation, was too sick to go on stage. So Annie stepped in as Frank's assistant. Don't you really have to trust a guy to let him shoot apples off your head? Here's another turning point in this story. For some reason, For the first time, Annie shot a gun on stage. So was it Frank sensing an opportunity? Was it Annie determined to come out of the shadow of her man? Or was it, better story, as I've read, that Frank missed some shots and a heckler screamed, let the girl shoot? Well, I sure hope not, given (laughs) if he's missing shots, Annie is holding the bottles, etc., and down there at the business end. So I'm hoping that part of the story is not true. I do like the thought of a heckler screaming and then the couple saying, well, how about this? Doesn't matter. She did shoot and she did not miss. The contrast between this teeny tiny lady and these giant guns and her accuracy made the crowd just sort of freak out. And when Frank and Annie left the stage... Crystal Hall in Springfield, Ohio, by the way. Annie did this little kick back of her foot on the way out. You know, like in movies to indicate true love, like when someone kisses and her little ankle pops up. Well, that's kind of what she did on the way out. And it became one of her signature moves. Well, poor old John Graham was out of that act faster than he could even get well. And Annie Oakley was in. Why Oakley? No one knows. There's a town in Ohio called Oakley. That's the likely source. It sounds good. I mean, I spent 
a lot of time in my childhood wanting to be called C.J. Broderick. No reason for that either, except it sounded good, not named after anything or anybody. So I wouldn't read too much into that. Some writers have even said, that's the name of the man that paid her train ticket way back in the day. Super doubtful. I mean, Annie never could find him. And if she'd had a name, wouldn't you think she would advertise? I don't know. That doesn't seem likely at all. But Butler and Oakley were now on tour. Frank Butler always, always acknowledged that Annie was the better shot. She could have taught me, he'd say. But he did show her the ropes of all of these trick shots that people like to see on stage. So looking backwards through a mirror and shooting over her shoulder, sometimes using a polished kitchen knife instead of a mirror. That's pretty cool. Blowing out candles, cutting ropes. She already had the regular target part down, of course. And she shot with a shotgun, which surprises everyone. She did not shoot with a rifle. She shot with a shotgun. For one thing, if you think about it, on stage... You don't want those things to go too far. Anyway, it was just deemed a safer thing to be surrounded by people and using a shotgun. Experts, of which I'm friends with many of them. Um, I'm a non-gun person who is surrounded by gun experts. I don't know how that happened. Anyway, they assure me that shooting with a shotgun accurately is just as hard as shooting with a rifle and that no one should dismiss her talent in that case. So anyway, I was surprised to know it wasn't a bullet. Uh, It was a bunch of shot. Anyway, um, they joined the vaudeville circuit, and this is what you had in these days before anyone could just go to the movies, you know, spectacular, spectacular, amazing variety shows that would show up in town with singers and actors and jugglers and animal acts and magic and dancing and trick shooters were another very common category. In addition, Annie and Frank would often enter local shooting contests to make money. You know, vaudeville was exciting and full of novelty, but really not that full of cash or fame. There were other lady trick shots, Mrs. Ruth, first name, no one knows. Miss Tilly Russell, known more for her, say, physical attributes than her skill, exactly. Um, maybe around 20 or so operating in various circuits when Annie joined Frank in the act. So the fact that she was a lady wasn't automatically that much of a novelty. It was kind of intriguing, though, that she was so little and she was so modest and so girlish. And um, I think the contrast really made people like her a lot. Plus, she was super good. She was very, very skillful. Annie did have a famous fan, though. When she was 24, a message came to the couple's hotel asking if they'd be able to meet Tatanka Yotanka, the man history knows as Sitting Bull, who is the Lakota Sioux leader who helped kill General Custer and all of his men at the Battle of Little Bighorn. The U.S. government was treating him so bizarrely. He was allowed pretty much free reign and they wanted him to see as much of, quote, white society as he could so that he could, there's no way to put this that doesn't sound patronizing. And it was. They thought maybe by exposing him to Western civilization that he would be able to go back and civilize his people. Sounds gross. Sorry I had to say it. That's just how it was. Well, anyway, he saw her on stage and was so impressed by her. Evidently, she bore a strong resemblance to a daughter of his who had died and her talent just blew him away. They did meet. Why do you like a person instantly? I don't know. It's pheromones or something. Um, They had an instant rapport and became friends almost immediately. He gave her the name Watanya Cecila, which loosely translated means little sure shot. 
a name that she used on promotional materials for years. So let's put Sitting Bull on the shelf of time for just a minute while we move on with Annie's story. Frank and Annie had joined an outfit called the Sells Brothers Circus, which, yes, eliminated the doubts of vaudeville's kind of, I don't know, erratic payment schedule. Um, So you really did have a steady paycheck. There's the one advantage. But Frank and Annie really didn't fit in with the circus people. You've read and heard, I'm sure, about how respectable people viewed show people. You know, they're immoral, they're sketchy, they're drunkards, loose women, violent men. And, you know, remember, Annie was raised a Quaker. She's quiet. She doesn't drink. Frank doesn't really drink. That's surprising. She is really more classically Victorian in outlook than you would guess. I mean, conservative even. She always wore a knee-length dress with gaiters or leggings, um, very covered, no revealing clothing, um, no overly sexy presentation. Neither of them blew their money gambling or buying anything extravagant. And, you know, they're surrounded by these dirty jokes and revealing clothing, and they were kind of uncomfortable. Also, So trick shooters in general are starting to get a reputation for cheating, especially on stage. They were starting to be viewed with suspicion. So many were cheaters. They were. So someone would blow out the candle with a puff of air from the wings or knock the cigar ashes off by jiggling them. The whole class of trick shooter as vaudeville act was really getting sort of tainted. And Annie was so proud of her skill. This just sorted turn of public opinion really upset her. So what she wanted was perhaps the open air, the good light, the careful scrutiny of thousands of eyes that would prove that she was the real deal. That's why she never stopped entering shooting competitions, by the way. She gathered medals by the dozens. So we're looking around for a different sort of opportunity. And there was this new show traveling around that was marketed as family-friendly. Excellent! A new show called Buffalo Bill's Wild West. And so they tried for it. No dice, friends. Bill already had the guy on his payroll that was considered the best shooter in the country. One of those only two shooters that Frank thought could beat him before that day of that contest between him and Annie. You know, sorry kids, I don't need another shooting act. I'm full of them. But they got another chance. A few months later, that famous shooter, Bogardus is his name, just up and quit. The show's famous now, but in its early years, it wasn't making any money. It didn't have any prestige. So Mr. Bogardus, that top shooter, thought he could do better for himself and moved on. I guess, said Bill, I can give you guys a tryout. Super enthusiastic invitation to, you know... I suppose, meet us in Louisville, Kentucky at the baseball field on so-and-so a day. We're setting up there. Don't get your hopes up. You know, bye-bye. Okay. I'm so really looking forward to seeing you. You know, it wasn't even that enthusiastic of an invitation. Dime a dozen, I guess, is what we're thinking. So they got there. They're a little early. Everybody's out. You know, there's a parade before the Wild West show starts to drum up interest, to drum up ticket sales. Everybody's gone. It's the perfect time to warm up. So there Annie was practicing ahead of time, left-handed, right-handed, targets, glass balls, backwards, forwards, warming up for their audition. (laughs) She sees over to the side this extremely well-dressed man, obviously 
not one of the company. He's got a vest on. He's got a long coat. He's got a tall hat. Um, he's got a pocket watch. You know, this man is not a member of the cast. We can safely ignore him. So when she was all done, this very man stepped out of the shadows and said, well, well, that's wonderful. You're hired. We simply must get you some publicity photos. And he kind of started to arrange for flyers before any contracts. It was Buffalo Bill Cody's business partner who hired Annie without even consulting Buffalo Bill. Or, you'll note, even offering Frank a job. From now on, Annie was the trick shooter in the family. Frank was the man behind the woman, which is so rare in those times. He's here. He's never gone for a day. He's just not in the forefront of my story for a while, although he keeps doing target shooting competitions. He doesn't lose his edge. He is just not part of the performance anymore. Buffalo Bill Cody, man. If we covered gentlemen, I think he'd be on the list. And I will have to link you to a biography of this guy. He genuinely did have Wild West street cred. I mean, he'd been a Pony Express writer. He fought in the Civil War. He was a prospector. He was a buffalo hunter. He killed over 4,000 buffaloes for food purposes. So at least somebody ate them. Um, He was an army scout. He was a model for a series of dime novels about the West that made his name world famous. Also, he was a womanizing, drinking, loud, emotional, theatrical dude. The polar opposite of Annie herself, we must say. But somehow they became the dearest of friends. He always called her Little Missy, and everyone in the show called her Missy. And she described him as the simplest, kinded, hearted, most loyal man I ever knew. It was just so adorable to me, their relationship. So what about this show then? Well, so you would pay your tickets, 50 cents if you were a grown-up or half price if you were a little kid. You know, 20 bucks versus 10 bucks in modern day. That's about the price of a modern day circus, I would say. So what would happen? You'd take your seat and all of a sudden you'd hear a voice. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and the only genuine and authentic, unique and original Wild West. And then almost 200 mounted men came galloping and hollering around the arena. Men dressed as cowboys and, shockingly, Indian performers. Just a note, I'm going to say the word Indian because that's how the Native American performers were referred to at the time. I mean, no disrespect at all through the rest of this episode. So moving on after the crowd. Here comes Buffalo Bill himself, half a lap behind in his Wild West fringed gear, and he waved his cowboy hat to everyone, and then everyone disappeared. Suddenly, there's roping, there's riding, a real live bucking bronco, and then a wagon train came in and circled up, and Indians attacked, and there was a battle, and cowboys saved the day. Annie performed often with Frank, always a hit. Indians hunted buffalo and did war dances. They had set up their teepees in a village. There was an acrobatic cowboy who jumped over a running horse, kind of like those fools on YouTube jumping over cars. Don't try either of those at home. Um, Pioneers were menaced at their log cabin and saved by soldiers. I kind of sense a theme here. (laughs) And the grand finale was a reenactment of a holdup of the famous Deadwood Stagecoach. It had been used to carry gold from the West um, and, of course, thereby became the target of many nefarious plots. Buffalo Bill himself even rode in it during scouting missions. And when he discovered that the famous Deadwood stage was lying abandoned in a field, he restored it and brought it back to feature in his show. It was a quite famous character all on its own. So Annie came in early in the show, kind of to put 
everyone at their ease, I think. Like, she's not frightening. She had such a theatrical way about her act. She played a lot on her youthful appearance. You do see some of her pictures when she's in a tight corset, especially the one where she's looking back over her shoulder with a mirror for one, but that's a publicity photo. Most of the time, she wore a very sensible, loose outfit that she made and sewed and embroidered herself. It was a knee-length skirt and some gaiters, which are kind of like leggings, a loose shirt, never pants, never bloomers. She thought bloomers were shocking and unladylike. So she would come in waving and skipping to the center of the arena to a table full of weaponry. And then Frank, who never got credit, he would do things like release the traps so that the clay birds would fly in the air two at a time, three at a time, four at a time. She would always get them before they hit the ground. Sometimes she would lay on her back across the table or a chair. Sometimes Frank would twirl a rope with glass balls fastened on the end, and she would shoot the glass balls from above his head. I tell you what, (laughs) Frank is a really trusting dude. (laughs) I don't know. And she's really good. It was estimated that Annie could turn and sight and shoot in a half of a second. She could shoot dimes right out of the air. She could tear a playing card right in half or pepper the card with holes on its way down. She also had a little stunt where she would lay her gun in the dirt about 10 feet away and Frank would throw something in the air and she would go get the gun and shoot it. So she was super fast running as well as shooting. If she missed a shot, she would stamp her foot and sometimes she would miss on purpose to kind of get that element of comedy in. She was a great performer. If a bird came into the tent, she would threaten to shoot it right out of the sky, although I think it was illegal to do so. (laughs) There was a little piece of her act that she added. It started by accident, but it got such a good reaction that they kept it. She was preparing for a trick shot and an assistant had kind of wandered into the line of fire. And of course, Annie saw him, but she like jumped up as if she'd almost killed him. And he put his hands up like, no, 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 don't shoot, don't shoot. I'm right here. There was a little element of drama and the crowd like screamed, oh my God, we almost witnessed a murder. And so it was so delightful that they kept it in for a lot more shows. So it wasn't just about the shooting. Sometimes she would miss on purpose just to prove that she wasn't cheating. That's pretty wise too. One time a man thought she was cheating and he was so convinced that she was cheating that he offered her his watch to shoot and she threw it in the air and shot it and handed him back the pieces. (laughs) She said, I don't think you're going to get a correct time out of this watch again. That's what you get, Charlie. So she was definitely a comedian. Whatever combination of tricks she decided to do, when she was done, she would run out of the arena and always give that little kick at the end. People ate it up. In addition to being a very popular performer, she was popular with the cast. I mean, a lot of these guys had the same Wild West street cred as their boss. These are real cowboys. These are real soldiers. And these are real Indians. And here's this proper married lady in the midst of them. They were pretty respectful, though. She said if they're ever in town and they're drunk and they see me, they cross the street and act like they didn't see me. She also said that nobody in the entire run... 17 years she was with this show. Nobody in the entire run of the show ever made a remark to her that they wouldn't have felt comfortable making to an eight-year-old child. It was like having a hundred older brothers. Even Sitting Bull himself was a member of the cast for one season only. It was a great reunion. Well, a couple of years in... Buffalo Bill hired a second female sharpshooter, and this one was only 15. Her name was Lillian Smith, and she had grown up honing her skills at her father's shooting gallery. And 
I have to say that's really kind of like a slap in the face. I mean, there was certainly some very bad feeling about it, at least from Annie's side. And it was at this time that Annie revised her age down six years. So she's really 26. But suddenly she's marketing herself as only 20 years old, causing mass confusion on Wikipedia's everywhere about her birth date. And not just that. I mean, biographies have the birth date wrong. It should be noted there's no birth date on her gravestone even. Oh, this Lillian, man, she was walking around bragging like Annie Oakley's going down, basically. I mean, I will give her that she's a good shot, but her personality was sort of abrasive and she didn't have the crowd the way Annie had the crowd and she liked the flashy costume and sort of the saucy or glamorous shtick, you know. Um, The relationship was never very cordial between Annie and Lillian, I'm afraid. And I will tell you, I'm glad to see that at least Annie, every time they went head to head, Annie beat her every single time they faced off. You know, but there she is, another lady in the cast. Well, moving on, really, by the end of the 1880s, the actual Wild West was starting to disappear. The pioneers were taking over. People were settling out there. There were lots of farms and this whole raw, adventurous, macho lifestyle was becoming a thing for the history books. And so um, it was a bit of nostalgia, I guess, for a time that most people had never seen. But in New York City, sometimes over 25,000 people came in one day to see the show, which was out in first Staten Island outside. And then later, they moved the whole operation for the winter to an indoor version, which they performed at Madison Square Garden. Not the one that you see, you know, the likes of Justin Bieber or whatnot in the second version, um, which the Bowery Boys did a great show about Madison Square Garden and its history. I'll link you up to that in the show notes. You know what, says Bill, or more likely his much more savvy business partner, the one with the fancy hat. You know what? England is getting ready to celebrate their queen. She has reigned for 50 years, her golden jubilee, and we'd be fools not to take advantage of this kind of once-in-a-lifetime celebration. And they took the whole show to London, including 200 horses, many buffalo, 10 elks, a couple of bears, and the Deadwood stage, whose loading was fraught with such drama it became a tourist attraction in itself. It kind of reminds me of um, everyone coming to see that one car get loaded on the Titanic. It was like, what if they drop it? It's going to be catastrophe, blah, blah, blah. Well, most of the members of this cast had never even seen the ocean before and almost everybody was horribly sick. So that sounds like an awesome trip. Awesome smelling, anyway. Supposedly, the Indians performed, quote, songs to ease their passage to death, which sounds like PR to me, but no one had to travel that road. We all made it and we set up shop outside of the Earl's Court District of London, where 2.5 million people saw this show. Not at once, not at once, but during the run, including our old friend Prince Edward, who later gave his name to the Edwardian era and features prominently in several of our previous episodes. So he and his wife, Alexandra, were so happy to meet Annie after the performance. Annie and the rest of the performers had been instructed in protocol. Um, How does one greet a member of the royal family? And she was supposed to start with Edward first but made a point of shaking hands instead with Alexandra, his wife, and said, you'll have to excuse me because I'm an American and in America it's ladies first. There is a theory that Annie disapproved of his open cheating on his wife with Lily Langtree. Possibly. It's a good story. 
Most people just chalked it up to naivete, but I'd like to think she was a little more calculating. Such was the furor over the whole show. And for Annie in particular, I want to add that Lillian Smith is still with the show, but Annie was getting the good reviews. Queen Victoria, who had not really appeared at the theater in well over 25 years, who doled out her public appearances sparingly and with much reluctance and much resentment, she came out special to see the show. Now, not the kind of show that everybody else saw with the screaming audience, etc. The whole gang, buffaloes and everybody, performed the whole spectacle for Queen Victoria and 25 other people. (laughs) Weird energy, right? You know, Queen Victoria wanted to meet Annie afterward and called her a clever, clever little girl. Well, she loved England and England loved Annie. She was invited to elite dinners and dances. And here she'd come in her simple homemade dresses. She gave lessons in shooting to British ladies. Here's her advice mostly. Make the gun an extension of your arm. Her teaching style there reminds me so much of that movie Better Off Dead when he got the ski instruction, you know, go that way. Very fast. Don't hit anything. I'm sure there was more to the lesson. You know what? By the time she retired, she estimated that she had taught 15,000 women how to shoot. How about that for a legacy? She would be titled noblemen in shooting contests out at their country houses. These men who'd been shooting their whole lives uh, in bird shooting competitions. And sometimes was the first woman to ever appear on certain shooting ranges that were, of course, reserved for gentlemen only. Annie received marriage proposals. It wasn't really publicized exactly that she was married. No one actually lied about it. And so awesome slash weird, Frank was never bothered by all the attention she got. He was, you know, the steadfast man behind the scenes and her rock to lean on. Maybe he ran the guns and ammo for the whole show. I think they might have given him that kind of job. He was certainly qualified for it. But I know at least he was her manager and her personal press secretary, and he was so proud of her. The king of Senegal, visiting, seeing her act, offered, this is how it's put, offered to buy Annie for a thousand francs from Buffalo Bill Cody, which implies a serious misunderstanding of the rights of women and the man in her life. But he wanted to bring her back with him to shoot some pesky tigers in his country. (laughs) Ah, the weirdness just keeps continuing. A book about her, a quote, biography, came out in Britain called The Rifle Queen, made up almost 100% of cockamamie nothing, like how she took down a bandit gang and roamed the open wild west. Did she? No. And hunted down a panther and killed wolves. Read about the life, exploits, and feats of the dead shot of the west. It was really, really weird, like a dime novel based on nothing but the persona she showed in the show. So strange. But as it was largely complimentary, at least... (laughs) She let it stand. There doesn't seem to be any reaction that she had to that completely inaccurate book. Her fame was really genuinely worldwide at this point. But something happened. Something happened. Annie never really talked about it. But she and Frank had some kind of disagreement with Buffalo Bill. What was it? Money? Billing? The prevailing wisdom seems to be that Buffalo Bill felt threatened 
by all the attention she was getting in England. I hate to think that's what it is, but, you know, Annie did take out several tricks from her act because she felt like Buffalo Bill was getting shirty about her leaving them in. She was perfectly able to ride around on a horse and shoot things as a trick rider, but she never really did it because that was Buffalo Bill's thing. Sensitive enough to know to take that out, I guess. That's courtesy, I think. But whatever the disagreement was, it was bad enough for her to leave the show for a while, over a year, even to work for a rival show back in America called Pawnee Bill's Historical Wild West Exhibition. She also entered a lot of shooting competitions, gathered many a medal, and quite a lot of cash. Is this the end for Annie's career? on the stage. It's time for me to take a little break. And when I come back, I will let you know the rest of the story of Annie Oakley. Okay, it's been a year. Somehow, Buffalo Bill and the Butlers must have mended things because Annie rejoined the troupe for the next European tour. Kings and queens and famous people of all kinds wanted to meet her. Paris, Germany, where she shot a cigarette out of the mouth of Kaiser Wilhelm. You know, if she had not been such a good shot, maybe we could have avoided World War I. I'm against time travel. Still, if anyone's keeping a notebook, an air horn at the right time. I don't know. In Spain, Annie was shocked to find some women rummaging through the show's trash and even more shocked to hear that this trash would be gratefully received by their hungry children back home. And Annie began making up parcels for these ladies and kind of distributing them out the back and began also a practice of supporting charitable institutions that had to do with women and children, which she kept up for the rest of her life. Let's see, there was sort of a worldwide panic just before the tour wrapped up. Annie Oakley dies in a far-off land, read Annie Oakley with her morning newspaper. A reporter had mistaken another woman for Annie. Now, in his defense, the poor deceased's name was Annie Oatley, but it took days, days, days to sort everything out and get news to her mother that she was okay. Well, back home... For nearly the next decade, Anne and Frank traveled half the year with the Wild West and spent half the year at a new house they bought in Nutley, New Jersey. I will tell you, yes, she lived in a tent for half of the year, but it was glamping rather than camping. There were rugs and chairs and photos and frames and rocking chairs and a bathtub and a stove to boil water. And, you know, this is not roughing it. And when she bought her house in New Jersey for the first time ever, she had servants. That was a novel experience. I don't think she liked it very much. There was the inevitable appearance at the World's Fair, as everyone alive during this period was. But 
The Wild West show was deemed too undignified for the white city and was forced to set up shop across the street. The joke's on you, World's Fair. Everyone was perfectly willing to cross the street. Thomas Edison was one of her neighbors up in Nutley, New Jersey. With his proto-motion picture camera, the kinetoscope, he filmed Annie shooting glass balls. And I actually will provide you a link to see that on YouTube. And that's really the only time Annie Oakley appeared on film, even though there was talk and desire and buzz about getting her onto the screen. This is the only time she was ever in a motion picture. One fateful day, Annie and Frank were asleep on the Wild West train headed through Virginia when their train collided head on with another train headed the opposite direction on the same track. No humans actually died. And uh, everyone was kind of amazed by that. But more than half the horses died. And Annie may have sustained some serious injuries, though this was really, really downplayed in the media, except for the fact that, quote, her hair turned white overnight. No. It didn't. In fact, she was 41. I mean, I started getting streaks at 26. It happens. You know, I don't know what to say. But Annie from now on wore a brown wig. Well, Annie left the Wild West show right after the wreck. It was the end of a 17-year run, but not the end of performing. A play had been written just for her called The Western Girl. You know, the usual plucky girl battles bandits and outlaws and falls in love and is a good shot. (laughs) Annie even got to ride a horse on stage. Doesn't that seem fraught with danger of poo? I don't know. Annie had been in plays before, both really short pieces during her vaudeville days. She had been in a couple of Western-themed long-form plays during the European tour. And in fact, she's an actress during every show. She's a crowd favorite, not just because of her shooting ability. Well, during this play, she was getting positive reviews. So what to her wondering eyes should also appear in the newspaper? Annie Oakley, most famous woman trick shot in the world, is in jail in Chicago for stealing a pair of pants in order to buy cocaine. I <laughs> what the heck? Well, turns out a much younger woman who was performing using Annie's name was the perpetrator in question. Mistaken identity, again. But the news was everywhere, and Annie wrote immediately and demanded retractions. Of course, she was anxious to protect her reputation. <laughs> She wrote later, this terrible thing almost killed me, she said, and someone will pay for this mistake. She sued 55 papers that wouldn't back down, spending almost all the money she won in judgments on legal help and travel expenses in seven years of her life, but finally was able to clean up the mess. And then she went out on the road again at 51 for a three-year tour with a show called Young Buffalo Wild West. New tricks involving a bicycle and shooting involving a rope in one hand and shooting with the other hand. Annie would have such a good YouTube channel. What a series of weird tricks she could perform. It should be noted that during travel, her name was bigger than the name of the actual show on all the promotional material. So she's made it. She's propping this show up. And when she retired from performing, she and Frank had... I have to say, quite the busy life. They hunted and fished and traveled and hobnobbed with the likes of Theodore Roosevelt, like you do. And when World War I was declared, Annie contacted the War Department and she offered that she would set up and run a group of women sharpshooters, kind of as, you know, a home defense unit. Okay, okay. What about training men at army training camps? Surprisingly accepted. So she went out there and 
performed slash gave tips to open mouthed soldiers all over the country who said, man, what we couldn't do with a whole platoon full of these. You had your chance. Well, she also would give performances with their dog Dave in aid of the Red Cross. Dave was trained to find money hidden in handkerchiefs all over the theater. And of course, the money went to the Red Cross. That's clever. I'm sure Frank trained that dog, by the way. He's the dog person. The dog whisperer. You know, in fact, his first show, the act that he started vaudeville with was a whole bunch of dogs. And evidently, his lead dog used to be a fire dog. And one day on stage, the dogs heard a fire truck go by outside and the lead dog headed out the door after the fire truck. All the other dogs followed her and Frank never saw his dogs again. So he turned to trick shooting. (laughs) So thank goodness for the fire truck, huh? Yes. Thank goodness for the fire truck. Well, after the war, Annie really focused on her charitable work, which she had begun so long ago in Spain. She supported research into a cure for tuberculosis. A couple of her sisters had died of that disease. Um, Mary Jane first and then Lydia, the second sister. She even molted down some of her gold medals from shooting competitions and gave money that way. She paid for the education of 18 young women and worked for treatment and rehabilitation of wounded soldiers from the war. A car crash when she was 62, left Annie with permanent injuries. She had to wear a brace for the rest of her life. And ultimately, Annie and Frank moved back to Ohio to live near slash with one of her nieces. And honestly, her health was really failing. Do maybe get this to lead poisoning from handling shot all of those years. I don't know. She was diagnosed with pernicious anemia, which is kind of a vitamin B deficiency. One of the major symptoms of that is called the fog, uh, you know, extreme fatigue, which is also one of the symptoms of lead poisoning. She settled down to write her autobiography and found it very hard going. She didn't get that far in. Uh, it was, a, you know, I can't imagine writing your autobiography. Where do you even, where do you even start? I guess I was born in blah blah blah. But it gets a little complicated after that. She did get a few chapters down. Frank had arranged to hire a professional writer to help her with her work, but unfortunately, her health declined so sharply that she'd never really made any more progress on it than that. And so we only have those few pages in her own words. She began to give away her things. That's always a bad sign. And curiously, I thought she left five times the money to her nieces than she did to her nephews. All I can think is that maybe she was more generous to the people who traditionally couldn't earn their own living. Well, incidentally... I did want to add something here. In her heyday, there was a lot of interest in getting a hold of her fame to maybe work toward getting women the vote. It's a good guess, you know, that someone working in such a man's world might be on board with this, but she really wasn't. Here's this quote. This is not very promising. She said about women's suffrage, it might not be too bad if only the good ones can vote. That's as far as she'd be drawn. And people were pretty disappointed. She's such an interesting mix of feelings on this. She always said that it was women who looked down on her for her work. It wasn't the men preventing her from doing it. That was the most difficult part was the women's reactions. Isn't that interesting? Also, even though admittedly she did sort of feed into these expectations and the marketing and the persona by skipping out there in the arena and playing up the contrast between, you know, oh, this manly skill and my little girlish figure, it still burned her that a man would be called a top marksman. But when Annie did it, whatever it was, oh, it was quite a trick. 
But I wouldn't call her a feminist. I wouldn't, even by the standards of her own day. Although she did request a female mortician and made her own funeral arrangements with this lady ahead of time, even picking out her dress. So Frank went on a trip and fell ill while he was gone himself. And these two people, these two people who had hardly ever been apart one night since the day they got married were not together at the end of their lives. I find that appallingly sad. Annie died in her sleep on November 3rd, 1926, and she was only 66 years old, the same age her father was when he had died so long ago. Frank heard the news and went into an immediate decline and died 18 days later of grief his friends said, and her ashes and Frank's body were buried side by side back in Ohio at her request near her mother's old house. And that brings us to the end of the life of Annie Oakley, famous sharpshooter of the, quote, Wild West. And now it's time for the media recommendations. And I'm going to go ahead and defy tradition and not start with books. I'm going to start with movies because I think that's how we mostly have ever even heard of Annie Oakley. Uh, there are two major ones. The first one's just called Annie Oakley, and it's from 1935, starring Barbara Stanwyck, which I thought was an odd casting choice at the beginning, but she's actually pretty cute. And people who knew Annie, I mean, this is less than 10 years after she died. So people who knew her and saw this said there was in fact quite a bit of the actual Annie in Barbara Stanwyck's performance. That's kind of a good accolade for the show. This version has some elements of history in it, like the fact that, you know, Annie hunted for the store, etc. But Frank Butler is not even given the name Frank Butler. He's Toby Walker. And they there's also this element of competition that we'll see kind of perpetuated a lot later between the Frank Butler-esque character and Annie Oakley, like a competition, the competition that Annie purposely loses to save the man's ego, not likely. But they sort of make it into a kindness, like she does it to save his job or his reputation, which does kind of sound like her. Uh, there are lines like, are you here to see me make a monkey out of that Andy Oakley? You know, <laughs> I would say watch it. I, on a rainy day, maybe it's not uh, must-see search-it-out TV, but Barbara Stanwyck is really so good. So I liked it. I liked it okay. And then there's the 1946 stage musical, Annie Get Your Gun, first starring Ethel Merman. Um, this character is so polar opposite to how Annie really was. She's really brash and... Super uncouth, I guess. And her accent is very crazy. She talks about the cactuses out west and all that kind of stuff. I don't think there's a lot of cactuses in Ohio. I could be wrong. Succulents are very popular. But Annie herself never lied about that, by the way. Annie never pretended she came from anywhere further west than Dark County, Ohio. But uh, in this one, we have, of course, Frank Butler finally getting his own name, but unfortunately not his own personality. The play and later... The movie adaptation from 1950, which originally starred Judy Garland, who was fired for health reasons, they say. I don't know if this was in her troubled years. Anyway, she was replaced with Betty Hutton. This movie and the play both made it seem like Frank and Annie had this giant rivalry and Annie fell in love with him and he was dismissing her in favor of a more feminine woman. And, you know, that's not the case at all. The real Frank Butler who, for secret in-joke reasons, was called Jimmy, 
I went, um, okay, so I pushed pause and I went and I got this book. <laughs> he wrote her poetry all the time. Uh, this one is so cute. Now, keep in mind, she called him Jim or Jimmy. Jim was a squirrel that lived in a park. He washed his face with his tail and went for a lark. He met a Miss Chipmunk, another kind of squirrel, says Jim. She will do for my very best girl. So he cocked his left ear and winked his right eye. Miss Chipmunk looked bashful but made no reply. But Jim was a squirrel that never would tarry. He made his best bow and asked her to marry. They jumped and they played every day of their life. For she loved her Jim, and Jim loved his wife. You know, so good. So he's kind of dorky and cute, and they loved each other every day since they first met. So, the end. (laughs) That said, you know what? That said, all the historical inaccuracies, I love it too. I love it too. You know, the song that's in it, anything you can do, I can do better. And then also, weirdly, I had forgotten that there's no business like show, business like, you know? That is in this musical, too. I had forgotten. It doesn't seem to fit, but obviously it's all about show business. So Uh, I first saw this on stage when I was about nine, and it's one of my favorite musicals ever. And I think I maybe like the hokier ones because I love Oklahoma, too. Also super hokey. But anyway, both the original and the revival of the play in the 90s went over a thousand shows. And Bernadette Peters won two Tonys for her portrayal of Annie. And there's just no historically accurate movie. That's all I have to say. The end. Still, you know. I can't help it. I like the musical. And um, so as for books and speaking of historical inaccuracies, I want to start off by anti-recommending one. I know this is going to be weird and I usually don't do it, but I was so startled and shocked. There's a book that looks lovely. It's called Bill O'Reilly's Legends and Lies, The Real West. And it is well put together and it has lots of sidebars, etc. But there's an error that shocks me so badly that I couldn't take any of this book seriously. They repeatedly refer to Annie as Phoebe Cates. <laughs> there is a Phoebe Cates. Anyone who's seen Fast Times at Ridgemont High knows there's a Phoebe Cates, but that's seems like a pretty major thing that you want to fact check. So Even though I wanted to read the rest of this, it has stories of Billy the Kid, it has stories of um, Buffalo Bill. Uh, I was not sure that I wanted to take in anything that this book said because that seemed, I'm, you know, everybody makes mistakes, but that one seems like nobody's fact checking at all. I was so shocked by that and um, the fact that it was kind of by a famous individual that I really couldn't go any further. So how about that? Let's go on to more positive things. There are two biographies that I found very helpful. One is Annie Oakley by Cheryl Casper. Um, This one is easy to read, goes pretty much in chronological order, uh, has a lot of little details that she really could have only gotten with primary source material, so I really like that. There's another one by Chuck Wills, Annie Oakley, A Photographic Story of a Life, and it seems like a slim book that might not have a lot of information in it, but in fact, it is packed. Uh, It is packed, and I really like it a lot. It's Maybe written in kind of YA style, but still, I think any adult would find good things in that. There are a whole bunch of children's books. I'm not even going to call them out here. Almost any children's book you find is going to do a pretty good job, uh, especially the ones with a lot of photographs. I'll link you to a couple and then I'll put some more in Pinterest, but no sense going through those all. I went off a little bit in a tangent. I read The Writer's Guide to Everyday Life in the Wild West from 1840 to 1900 by Candy Moulton. There's a series of these. You can get Everyday Life in Medieval Times, Everyday Life in the Tudor Era, you know, etc. And it's kind of a glossary of terms and money and food and typical dress and everything. And that was very helpful to me. And then I went back a little further and read 
The Boy Who Became Buffalo Bill, Growing Up Billy Cody in Bleeding Kansas by Andrea Warren. And that gives you so much detail on his street cred and how he became who he was. And I really found that fascinating. And like I said earlier, if we covered men, he might be one uh, to cover because I really thought he was a fascinating dude. Some internet things. <laughs> While I was desperately trying to connect the game Parker Brothers with the gun Parker Brothers, I found a link to the largest Monopoly board. <laughs> so for no apparent reason at all, um, given that I can't connect the Parker Brothers, I will link you to that. Um, also the Bowery Boys Madison Square Garden podcast episode. There is a museum in Dark County, Ohio called the Garst Museum that has a lot of Annie Oakley artifacts, and I will link you to that. There was an Annie Oakley TV show for three years in the 1950s. Annie Oakley hits the bullseye with her rough riding, straight shooting suspense. I don't know where this guy got these episodes, but some guy has placed many, many of the episodes on YouTube. So I will link you to one and you can explore from there. It's hokey in the way that, you know, Andy Griffith is hokey, but sometimes that's kind of comforting. Thomas Edison, with his kinetoscope, caught Annie shooting um, some of her guns on film. There's no sound. I will link you to something from the Library of Congress. You can see, I believe, Frank setting her up for shots, throwing balls. So it's a very, very short clip, maybe 25 seconds or so. But that's amazing from that far back. There is a modern day lady trick shooter named Kirsten Joy Weiss who has her own YouTube channel. And so you can see how she does with cutting a card in half, etc. Some of the classic tricks. And then the last link I'm going to leave you with is Annie versus Toby Walker from the 1935 movie, uh, The Scene, where she throws the match because her mother says, you're not going to make that young man lose his place, are you? because the mom and Annie were concerned that all the men would mock him too thoroughly by being beaten by a girl. Unlikely, still a very sweet scene. So I'll link you to that. And in closing, rather than read from her obituary or an homage to her from one of her biographies, I think I'm going to leave you with some advice from Annie Oakley that would really apply to everyday life. And here it is. The marksman who hesitates is lost. Just take it for granted that you're going to hit and fire away before you have time to doubt the certainty of success. It's good advice. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you learned something today, please tell a few friends about the podcast or please, oh, please leave a review for us on iTunes. Please feel free to join the discussion over at Facebook or talk to Susan on Twitter or me on Instagram, where you can post your pictures of your fabulous vacations, where you can post pictures of your historically themed vacations at the hashtag History Chicks Field Trip. We would all love to see your photos. Find us on Pinterest, where the Annie Oakley board is I promise you, not 100% full of Buffalo Bill exhibition posters, but there are a lot of them. So please find us there too. And again, I can't say enough about that app, Libby, L-I-B-B-Y, for which I'm receiving nothing except hours and hours of enjoyment. You hook your library card up to this app and it opens the world of your library systems, audiobooks, and ebooks up to you for the cost of free. Yes. Let me know what you're listening to.
even during Annie's lifetime, the term Annie Oakley had come to mean a free ticket to something. Now, what was that connection? Remember those playing cards she used to punch holes through while they were flying through the air? People thought that they looked like train tickets after the conductor had gone through and punched them. So, next time you have an extra ticket, send a message out that you have a couple of Annie Oakleys to the Royals game, insert your event of choice, of course, and see who gets it.